The International Development Academy provides a once-in-a-lifetime experience for aspiring young soccer players. With elite training and competition, exposure to college and professional scouts, and state-of-the-art academies and facilities, IDA is the next step in your soccer career. Our academies located in Spain, England, the U.S., and Italy are designed for athletes aged 15 to 24. And if you aren't ready to commit to a full-time experience, we also offer short-term opportunities, including summer camps. Learn more about IDA at internationalda.com today. That website again, internationalda.com. Welcome to New England Soccer Journal's The Goal Podcast, the podcast for serious soccer players and their supporters to help further their development and navigate their way throughout their soccer careers. And now, here's your host, Matt Langoni. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode of New England Soccer Journal's The Goal Podcast. We've got a great guest for you today as I'll be joined in studio by Northeastern Women's Soccer Head Coach Ashley Phillips. Ashley is entering her seventh season as the Huskies head coach. The native of Peabody, Massachusetts, is a former Gatorade Massachusetts Player of the Year who went on to star as a goalkeeper at Clemson University and then professionally for the Boston Breakers. Ashley, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. No problem. I almost said Clemson College there. It's definitely Clemson it's University. It's definitely right? Clemson University. <laughs> yeah, I knew it was. Um, so we have a lot uh, we're going to get to today. Um, obviously, we'll talk about uh, the upcoming season with Northeastern, but I want to first start things with the the new landmark collective bargaining agreement uh, that was passed a few weeks back that essentially will now give equal pay to the women's national team and the men's national team. Um, You're a former high-level player, um, professional player. I imagine this sparks up some great reaction for you and and just fellow former players. Yeah, obviously this is a monumental, um, you know, CBA negotiation in terms of uh, women's sports uh, and definitely within women's soccer. Um, you know, and I think it's an exciting time because it just shows that people are starting to respect the women's side of the game, um, at more of an equal scale. And obviously we know our women's team has been successful for decades now. And so to see, you know, all the work kind of pay off for for these young women to finally get that opportunity, um, to, to make a sustainable living, right. And, and, and playing the game that they love. So definitely exciting. And, and, you know, I think it, it was a little bit overdue, but I think a lot of things had to come, you know, fall into place in order for that us to get to that point. Um, so it's definitely exciting. I think a little bit overdue is an understatement. It's, it's massively overdue. And, you know, the women's team has been the better, let's, let's be honest, the women's team has been the better national team in this country. It just it just has. Uh, that, I mean, the product has been incredible for years. Um, how frustrating was it for for players, current and former, to just kind of watch as like that, that it even gets to this point where we have to just wait and wait for for equal pay for for equal play. Yeah, I obviously the the women's side has been significantly more successful, so I think that alone uh, created um, you know some frustration within people of the game because we weren't seeing why they weren't. Um, being funded and paid to the same extent when performing at a higher level, right? And so, you know, I think the older I've gotten and the more time I've spent learning about these things, there were definitely some challenges in terms of, you know, where else their revenue sources would come from. Um, You know, for example, on the men's side, right, they're paid by their clubs and significantly in the end of itself for years couldn't do that. And now they can. So that gives an opportunity to, to... 
put the CBA in a position where they're, they're paid, you know, per match and per, you know, invite into camp and things like that. Um, so I do think there was other outside challenges that held us back. But I, I also think that, that, you know, because throughout the rest of the world, the women's game is still uh, not as popular as the men's game. I think we just kind of fall suit in that. And I think it's really great to see U.S. soccer can take, take a stand and say, well, guess what, in our country, they are more popular, right? They are. They do have better attendance, and, and they are better, right? They perform at a higher level. So, um, you know, I think th- that there's definitely been some frustration throughout the years, um, but ultimately I think all that frustration was to get to this point, right, and, and for people to kind of listen and, and hear these players out and, and give them an opportunity to have this be their life and have this be their, their means of, of supporting their families and things like that um, without having to find other avenues to scrape by, right? Right. Side jobs, part-time. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy because of the amount of commitment you're putting into to that craft. And I mean, on the plus side, U.S. soccer becomes the first federation in the world to do this, to equalize pay. So, I mean, that's, I guess... We're, we're in the forefront, which is good, right? I mean, that's that's the biggest plus here is that we were able to do it. Yeah, and I think seeing them take a step over what some other uh, countries have done to try to close the gap in equality, um, not only is the pay structure the same, but now they're also pooling um, prize money for, for FIFA competition. So that alone is is so game-changing in terms of the dollar amount because, you know, FIFA still, the the prize money is higher on the men's side, right? Because internationally they bring in more revenue. So I think for us to take a larger step in that regard and to make it equal across the entire landscape um, is really cool. Again, to see the U.S., especially on the women's side, continuing to try to be at the front of the game. You know, not only as perform- in performing, but now also in the, in the way they treat these players. Right. And rolled into this, too, you have, you have health and safety protocols that are the same for, net, for men and women now. You have data privacy and, and you know, all those, all those extra things that go along with, with the financial aspect. So that's going to be cool, too, just the benefit aspect of it. Yeah, you know, you've seen all the things on social media, the <laughs> fields they're at, the training grounds they've, right. they've been provided, and, you know, why are they playing on turf and the men are playing on grass? And, you know, all these things really do matter, right? It, it matters for some of the older players and the longevity of their careers and the injuries. And um, it's hard to compete at the top of the world but then not be treated that way, right? So they should be um, treated as, as they are ranked. And, and I think we're getting to that point, and that's exciting that now that's in writing, right? And so now those are grounds that the league, or the U.S. soccer has to stand by. The federation has to right. meet these demands now. So uh, absolutely, there's so many things. I mean, honestly, it sounds crazy, but even the men didn't have the same like, paternity um, assistance on the road. Like, they have families too. And, and we, you know, the women were getting childcare and, yeah. and they weren't. And, and in some situations, those men might be solely responsible for kids, right? right? So, um, you know, I do think there's a lot of things that seemed small for them to change, but it's exciting that they've be- become a commitment. Yeah, it's, it's funny how, like, roles have changed just as, as I mean, I, I, have, I have two boys in. As a sports writer, I've always worked at night, so I'd, like, bring my kids to, to school and, and pick them up. Or, like, people would be like, what, what are you, just not working? I'm like, no, we just, I'm just a dad. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the role. The roles, people just expect things to, to stay the same they, the way they've always been. And it's just, you know, things, the roles and, and the way things are have changed and paternity leaves and maternity leaves. I mean, it, it all should be equal because they're all invested in the same type of thing. You know? Yeah, and they're all humans, and they're all parents, right. right? And I think, like you said, people just think it's how it used to be. And yeah. it's, 
it's not a lot of women working moms and a lot of working dads out there that are that are juggling both sides of things and so i think you know, to, to allow those those people the opportunity to still play at a high level without sacrificing the time with their family or the commitment that they, they owe their families um, I, it is another huge step in this CBA. So Absolutely. Did you have a chance to, uh, I'm sure you have, speak to some of your players about this and what it means? Because, um, you know, these the players playing now maybe don't know what it was like for, for players who played professionally or, or played for the national team 10, 15 years ago. I mean, they're going to grow up with a, with a different set of circumstances so did you have a chance to get any reaction from from your players about what this means yeah I think for the young women I coach it's just really exciting when they see um you know things that take a step forward in, in women's equality right across the landscape even for the ones that don't wish to continue to play pro I think it's just exciting for them to see that people are actually starting to look at them deservingly um and that they deserve things and that they're humans and that they work hard and they they commit a lot to what what they do in their lives, and so, you know, it's funny when we, you know, I talk even about my first years in the WPS, and you know, then the NWSL when it first came alive, and you know what we were doing to to play, and you know, they don't necessarily, they haven't seen people go through that situation, so I think it makes it even more exciting for them. Um, and you know, we have a player now playing with Chicago, and even for her, it, it, everything is better for her, right? And that is why a lot of these women over the last 30, 40 years put in all that time and balanced all this chaos and did it for the love of the game with the hopes that these, these people would have a better opportunity to, to make it a lifestyle. And you just gave me a perfect segue, like a like a pro podcaster there with the talking about your experience at the pro level. Now you played in the NWSL, was it from oh nine to thirteen with the Breakers? Yes. What what was that experience like, the the pro experience for you then? Yeah, you know, it was really unique because when I finished college there was no league. Um, you know, Wusa had folded and, and there was talks about a league coming back, but nothing was, was formal at the time. So after college I really didn't know what to do with my life because <laughs> I had plan to either coach or play soccer right so um I kind of lingered in training in the game and staying in the game in Atlanta um and then the WPS was announced which was exciting and I got called in uh honestly just in a tryout situation with the breakers I knew um Lisa Cole from being a youth player and Tony DiCicco and and they were like yeah come in we need we need some depth in that position so um you know, I played three years in the WPS and then it folded and I was like, well, now what, you know, and, and there was a, a sort of sustainable interim year, um, but not for someone like me. So I took a full time job and I was at Northeastern part time at, at, at that point. Um, and then the NWSL came about and everyone was really excited because they just had a better structure. They had a more sustainable yeah, model. Yeah. Um, and I didn't really intend to get back into playing, but, but did, and I'm happy I did cause I really enjoyed it. Um, and played a few years in that league. And that I think was the point that we all felt like this, this could go long-term like this seems more practical. Again, we weren't paid super well, but there was alternative sources for income that the clubs were helping provide were, were you paid enough to have that be your primary job or did you have to have some side hustles along with that yeah so i wouldn't even call them side hustles um <laughs> i actually worked a full-time job at a sports what? performance facility That's a full hustle, yeah. um i worked part-time as an assistant coach at northeastern and i played at the same time which sounds crazy but to be honest there were so many players doing that at the same time and um, to be fair to the coaching staffs and the, the, the managers in these, these clubs, they worked with us. They allowed for it. I'll be honest. I'm lucky I found a job that was in sports that like understood it, right? That I was gone from 10 to one every day at practice and then coming back. And, 
Um, it, yeah, it definitely was income, but for someone like me who wasn't eight, 20 years old and had to kind of support a stable lifestyle, um, I definitely felt that I needed to make more income than what we were provided. And so, yeah, you just made it work. And um, again, the clubs kind of helped you along the way make it work. But yeah, it was definitely not uh, sustainable income. It's crazy to think about. I mean, you're trying to play a sport at like the highest level possible. And it's like, okay, I got to go. I'm leaving training. I'm going to go jump on my other job that I have. And it's just, it's it's a nutty kind of lifestyle. Because think about what pro athletes have now. It's just different. What were the best parts of that breakers and professional experience? The friendships, the camaraderie. Yeah. Um, I, I will say playing a professional sport is like nothing ever, ever, anyone could ever, right, compared yeah. to um, you're basically like a small child in an adult body, like doing what you've always <laughs> dreamed of. And <laughs> I, I, th- put it. I yeah. think that was the best part about it is you just every day got the chance to go out there and play a game, right? And get paid, might not have been much, but you're getting paid for it. And, and I, you know, I think a lot of people around the world would love for that to be their job. And, um, you know, the friendships, the social gatherings, uh, winning games and celebrating and, uh, trips, travel, like everything you loved about your college soccer career was your life. It was your every day. And, um, you know, I'm really lucky now I, I'm out in the soccer world still. And I see all the people I played with, or I talked to him, I text, you know, I had a teammate come run the Boston marathon and we got together and I saw our three little kids and it was amazing. And, um, so I think it's created connections and friendships that last forever because you're living a lifestyle together. You know, you're spending <laughs> years right. um, as adults living together in hotels and host families and things like that. So um, the game was honestly taught me more than I ever thought it could at that level. Um, I was fortunate to have really, you know, successful coaches and intelligent coaches. Um, so that's helped me in my now career. But I definitely think just like most people would probably say about their college careers, those friendships and the um, off-field social life that you you kind of gain from that um, is something you can't ever mimic in a real workspace. Yeah. Did you enjoy the travel, the road trips and yeah, everything? I love it. Yeah. I still do. You still love this it now? I still coach. Um, yeah, I'm one of those weird people that loves to travel. Airports, a, everything. I get do on too. a flight, yeah. stay in a hotel, um, drive crazy yeah. hours. Um, yeah, I do. I, again, I think the social aspect of that is uh, definitely something where I would say a lot of professional players in, in our world, uh, why they stayed in it for so long. Right. Uh, do, do your players, do they ever pick your brain about your pro experience? Do they talk to you a lot about that and ask you about it? Yeah, mostly the ones who have the same ambition of playing. Um, You know, we've had quite a few throughout my time at Northeastern that um, do. They kind of ask, and it's changed a bit, and I'm lucky I still have have some connections with the league, so I have a better understanding of what it looks like now and the landscape of it. But um, absolutely, and, you know, I always like to tell them, like, you, you have to love this. You have to go into it. You're not going into it to make millions like of you might think you love it but you really need to love it even more than yeah. You think you yeah and you know we you tell like your roles can change your situation can change you know this they're getting to pick from the best players in the whole world right we're in, in the college game with 30 players on our roster that we're choosing from and so um you know we definitely have those conversations and um we have some that choose to go in that direction and some that are like no maybe i don't love it that much yeah um but yeah, absolutely. And I, I think even just the stories I can relate to, you know, I, I played some in the league and I sat on the bench a lot in the league too, right? And and so to be able to have those conversations with players of like, 
I have been in all your situations. I wasn't just always a superstar, right? And I wasn't the, the best player in the world or anything like that. I, I can relate um, to, to most of them across the board and, you know, suffered through injuries and things like that. So I, I do think they more come up in conversations about dealing with challenges and um, buying into to roles or how to, you know, contribute the best you can in a certain role things like that um usually they they like funny stories about some of the more famous players i played with (laughs) you know um but yeah we definitely here and there have those conversations are you optimistic that the environment for women's players will continue to grow and improve in in the next decade and, and then pass that yeah i do you know i think there's a few things that come into play i think women's sports across the board are starting to kind of demand um a little more attention, a little more appreciation and respect. And, you know, I also think young people are just realizing it is okay to feel and share that you feel devalued, right? And, and you know, you have to do that respectfully, but how do you go about that and, and what are the ways? And, and, again, I think really taking advantage of some laws that were put into place, right, and, and some – um, situations that came about decades ago and like how can we continue to push those like they weren't meant to just work for those 10 years they were meant to, to create like a, ca- a catapult for for long term so I, I absolutely do I think there's a lot more people in the world more excited and I think you see an investment um, you know you see it in the WNBA you see it in the NWSL of like former male athletes you know current former female athletes investing in clubs across the board. Um, And I think when you see that people with a pedestal to kind of stand on that are famous, right, investing, it gets people excited. And so I think that momentum will continue to progress things in a positive direction. New England's soccer journals, The Goal, will return after this. Are you serious about playing your sport in college? Do you need a flexible education that allows you to maintain your practice and competition schedules while also preparing you to succeed at the next level? You should check out the University of Nebraska High School. UNHS is accredited and offers more than 100 online courses, including NCAA-approved courses to protect your academic eligibility. Students could earn a UNHS diploma or take a single course for transfer credit. Courses are college prep, self-paced, and available 24-7, 365. Enroll anytime and take up to a year to complete a course. Visit highschool.nebraska.edu today. What does it take to become a champion? Teamwork, talent, grit, and above all, opportunity. Husak Elite Soccer has all that and more. Let's go, let's go, let's go! Husak School is located in beautiful Husak, New York, right on the edge of New England. And Husak students don't just dominate on the field, they dominate in the classroom. Students at Husak benefit from a rigorous academic program, expert instruction from an amazing faculty and staff, fine and performing arts, championship athletics, and the once-in-a-lifetime experience that comes from a student body of over 200 students from more than 40 different countries. Soccer teams practice. Elite soccer teams train. Husak Elite Soccer. Isn't it time you went from good to elite? For more information, check out HUSAC.org. Looking to keep up with all the latest news and information on New England soccer? New England Soccer Journal and NESoccerJournal.com are the premier resources for information and inspiration on the New England soccer scene. Have every issue of New England Soccer Journal the magazine 
delivered to your home or office. And don't forget to stay in the game every day with a digital subscription to AnySoccerJournal.com to receive soccer coverage on clubs, college commits, prep and high school, Division I, II, and three colleges, showcases, rankings, and so much more. Get in the game and behind the scenes now by going to AnySoccerJournal.com. Just click on the subscribe button and start the subscription that is right for you today. New England Soccer Journal is a Siemens Media publication. Siemens Media. Inspiring. Informative. Insightful. You're a North Shore, Massachusetts uh, native like myself. You're from Peabody. Um, What was uh, the soccer upbringing like for you? You know, when did you really kind of fall in love with the sport? Yeah, it was nothing like it is now. Um, <laughs> That's it's, what I always say. When I was a kid, it wasn't like it is now. It's so different. Um, you know, honestly, PBD youth soccer, uh, four or five years old, my mom threw me out there on a boys team. <laughs> I got thrown in goal and I cried. I hated it. I wanted to score goals, and I did. Eventually, I convinced the coach not to put me back there anymore. Um, yeah, but I grew up in PBD youth soccer. I played all the way through travel soccer and then went to high school, and I spent some time at Fenwick. Um, played varsity soccer at Penway, right? Like, did the whole normal, played high school soccer. Um, I did play for club teams at the time, and it was a little different. We competed for, like, state cups and regionals. And, um, yeah, it wasn't until, you know, kind of sophomore year in high school that I had a coach that, you know, kind of mentioned to my mom that I was actually, could be really successful at <laughs> yeah, this. Yeah, you might want to zero in on this. This um, is pretty good. And, I, you know, I played basketball, and I was super serious about that at the time. And he was like, she can still be serious, but she's not as good as she is at soccer. <laughs> so that's where things kind of started to um, take a more, more. we took a more serious approach to it. Um, you know, I, I joined at the time we used to have state teams. I joined our, our ODP state team, um, went to a regional camp, and, and honestly within the first three months was on a national team and, and um, going to Houston, Texas, I think at the time, to, to play in an international friendly. And I was like, what just happened? <laughs> um, so it really changed fast. Like I went from being a normal uh, recreational sort of club soccer kid yeah. to kind of instantly be thrown into a like you could compete at a high level um, how did you get the attention of Clemson was that at one of those national was it a national event or was it just you did you seek them out or how did that happen yeah honestly the the, the national team probably helped I'm assuming you know just like we do you have these lists of all these kids who are in the national right. pool um, and then I, I you know we did go to some recruiting events and showcases I think we went to Jeff Cup and at the time it used to be Orange Classic was the big one in Florida um, so I think you know just through those events I, I actually you know it's funny I wanted to go away from home um, I remember talking to some some recently retired <laughs> women's coaches around here like no I don't want to stay in Boston um, my mom thought I was kind of crazy yeah. um, I basically pulled up the top 25 programs in the country and picked which ones I thought were cool um, and then visited you know and went on visits and you know I you definitely emailed at the time but I don't think they really that wasn't as popular right right um, but yeah I mean I think just being in that national pool at the time and and having uh, some sort of recognition as a player definitely helped. Um, and I fell in love. I, I absolutely. I went on all five of my official visits at the time. You can did that. It was a different process than it is now. Um, and I just told my mom when I left, like, I want to go to school here. And she was like, well, finish your visits. And I did. Um, and I was like, I still want to go to school there. So. Wh- wh- where else were you considering? 
Um, I looked at the the more serious places I looked at that I was really excited about. Virginia, Duke, um, Clemson were, were my top so three. So ACC schools, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. I, I went out to Santa Clara, but I just don't think the West Coast was the right fit for me. Um, I think I did a visit at Boston College. Um, Allison definitely was a, was a good co- friend, a co- former colleague, but also yeah. a good mentor when I was young. Um I definitely wanted to be in the ACC. I think I learned fairly quickly through my national team experience that that was at the time and and still most years is the most successful soccer conference in the country. And, um, you know, I just love the athletic atmosphere at those schools. Um, It's so different than, I mean, I've gone to some of these, I mean, really going to a lot of football games at some of those places, you know, some of those uh, big-time universities. And the atmosphere, you're right, the atmosphere is just, it doesn't compare to, like, what we have in New England. It just, it's like a different animal. No, I altogether. think uh, Clemson ripped me in. Uh, they had a, the Clemson women's soccer team played South Carolina, which yeah. was crazy how many fans they got. And yeah. then the following day, um, it was the Clemson Georgia football game. <laughs> and I remember like texting my mom, like, can I just stay? Yeah, here we don't see this year? up here. We don't see um, this. But yeah, and I, I think for my college experience, I, uh, that was a big part of it. I, we, we don't really have that. I wanted to experience a different like cultural aspect of life. And, right. Um, it was honestly the best four years of my life. I loved it. I, I got everything I wanted out of my college experience. Um, you know, kind of thought, could I live in the South forever? And then I was like, no, I can't. Um, but yeah, no, you always got to come back. No, after, yeah. yeah. So, um, but yeah, it was honestly just you just know. I think once you get somewhere that you feel like this could be home. Um, you know, four years is a long time, and yeah. you have to feel good about that. And um, I love the other schools. I honestly am still good friends with the other coaches now their colleagues um from the other schools and um you know academically they were some of the most prestigious schools in the country so people probably thought I was crazy at the time but I just I think I knew that Clemson was a better fit for me um as a person so now you're back in Boston obviously with Northeastern and you guys have a good thing going with the program Uh, like I said or we off air that um the program hasn't had a losing record since 2014 so I think 13 was the last losing record that's I mean that's good really good success on the field I mean obviously a couple 500 records thrown in the mix but um what's the expectations for 2022 now that we're only you know a couple months away from the season yeah I hope you didn't just (laughs) I probably did you can I can (laughs) own that um I'll have my AD call you um every year we have the same expectation and have, uh, you know, I was really fortunate to come into that program when, when Tracy Leon was hired and um, she, um, along with some of our other assistants, uh, worked tirelessly, right, to, to kind of put it in a place where we could consistently win at a high level. Um, you know, so just like every other year, you know, we, we hope to compete for a conference championship and we hope to really contend at a high level within the New England region. And, um, you know, one of our goals is to make sure that we're competing with all the other, you know, successful programs around here. So um, we 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 don't really change our goals and our expectations in terms of, you know, we do believe um, that we have the right people, uh, right players, and then right right character of people to, to compete within the CAA, um, you know, and try and make a playoff run. That's our goal every year and try to put ourselves in a position in the finals, um, you know, that we can hoist another trophy. How would you describe the culture that you try to instill or that you probably have instilled by now? Because this will be year seven for you. But um, what do you look for in keeping the program going when building a team each year? Yeah, you know, I think every year we've worked, you know, as a staff to try and make it more player run. Um, You know, I think I've talked to a lot of colleagues that, you know, coach at really um, 
you know, nationally regarded programs. And I think a big part of it is led by the players. And so every year we're trying to find um, the right young people with the right character, the right values um, that, that want to be successful, that want to kind of take care of themselves, but also have have goals of empowering other people around them. And, and so I think, you know, every year we have new leaders usually come in or, you know, maybe you have some graduate that you need to fill those voids. And I think our biggest goal is to just help empower the younger people to step up and, and kind of guide guide the team. Um, you know, we, we have some, some core values that we kind of don't really have to say anymore, but um, we do, obviously. But we kind of just what we look for in players is they have to be self-motivated. They have to want to get better and have to want to work to get better. Um, but they also have to be really fun, and I know that probably sounds really immature, but um, I coach college soccer for a reason, and um, one of the biggest reasons is to enjoy it. Uh, and I think no matter what your circumstance is, you're not going to be successful if people aren't happy. Um, and so we really want a group that can take things seriously and, and, you know, roll their sleeves up and get to work, but through it all can can laugh and joke and um, have a good time with each other. Is this something where, like, you know, you played for a lot of coaches in your time and you played at a high level. Is this something where you're kind of taking from your playing career and saying, you know, I wish I had a coach who was kind of like this. When I coach, this is how I'm going to be. Because I, I, as a player, I think I would have appreciated this. Is that something you take from your playing career, your coaching style? Yeah, absolutely. As I mentioned, I was so fortunate to play for so many yeah. talented coaches across youth and professional careers. So um, absolutely, you know, you take the good and you think about the things that you would change. Um, and I think, you know, every person I've worked for has been different and has been really good at something different. And I've really admired that. And they've also probably struggled through something different, just like I do. Um, and so I've always tried to find what were the things I loved as a player or that my teammates really admired. And then what were things that, you know, made people dissatisfied um and, and then we do the same as a staff now right and we talk to our kids as they graduate and ask them um what are things that they need they think we could do better and where we could grow and and try to get that feedback because um what works for me might not work for them and so i have to take that into account what advantages if there are you know ones you can pinpoint of being a former goalkeeper to to coaching an entire team i mean i, I i've asked a lot of former goalies this i mean you, you have the best view of the field at all times. So there's that, but I've asked some former goalies and there's like, Oh, I don't know if there's really anything to take from that, but do you feel like there is? Yeah, I've been asked this once before. I think there's a few things. I do think tactically, um, you know, I know all the levels I played, I was asked to understand a lot is specifically in defending. Right. And then, and then some in the build out. Um, I, I also think you're typically the loudest and the most comfortable being commanding and you demanding. Have to be, right? and, yeah. I do think that's a characteristic that in coaching it it kind of makes some of those uh, moments where you're really dependent on easier. Um, you know, I think as a goalkeeper, you're the last line, right? Everything falls on your shoulder. So dealing with that pressure too, I mean, as a head coach, it just, it gives you a little bit more um, comfortability being in those places. And um, so I, I do think there's qualities that you find in goalkeepers naturally. And then um, definitely the tactical side of things and that, even playing professionally at times when I wasn't playing, you know, you learn so much from kind of having that view from an outsider's perspective um, that I absolutely think tactically it's allowed me to evolve my understanding of the game. So now we're like two months, a little more than two months from the season. Um, players will probably be reporting in August, I imagine. Um, what's this time of year like for you? What are like the main objectives when you're trying to gear up for this next season? 
Yeah, you know, I think for for us, some of it was, you know, we finished out the spring, give the girls some time, um, you know, to enjoy family, friends. Yeah. Um, you know, hopefully they're doing some work preparing themselves um, as we start to get to be about two months away. And then for us, it's, you know, it's interesting because a lot of recruiting, um, you know, we're, we're kind of finishing up a 23 class and about to start a 24 class. And so there's a lot of overlap. So you're trying to do that plus you know, communicating with the girls, you know, we still have some leadership meetings. Um, you know, you're just texting here and there, calls, check-ins. Um, you know, we'll start, like, fully planning for preseason in, in July, like right after the 4th July week. Um, so we haven't really gotten there, but you're never really not there. We're thinking about it all the time and what we need and what needs to be better and what we wish last year we did or um, what we did well, uh, things we can build on. So it's a lot of everything at once, honestly, <laughs> this time of year. It's kind of crazy, and, and you're supposed to – people are like, you're supposed to take some time off, and it's like, yeah, why? Yeah, no chance. Um, so, yeah, it's a little bit of everything. I, I do think right now recruiting has is a is the biggest, you know, probably priority um, because you do have the time to really commit to it. The recruiting just never stops, huh? It's just <laughs> like I, I marvel at that about college coaches. I mean, you're just always – you always have to be living in the present but also thinking in the future. Yeah, the recruiting part, and I was talking to a family yesterday, uh, was just trying to keep track of classes, like who was in 22, who was in 23, what are we going to do for 24, and um, it, yeah, it's never-ending, and I think the most unique part is we're recruiting for teams that we haven't even seen the the newest team, right, so we're, we're recruiting for two years out, and like what we think we need in 24, but I haven't even seen our 22s yet. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, it just doesn't stop. And I, I do think that there's some committees out there trying to find some other ways to put at least a little bit more of a break period. We there's ha- got to be an easier way, right? I mean, there. Uh, you know, I think they closed the timeline, which is helpful. I do think holding off communication until that June 15th before junior year has really helped. Um, but I think, you know, we only have one dead period in December, which we love. And so I'm so grateful for because it it's amazing right. to have a holiday break. Um, but, you know, there's been some talks about can we instill, like, put in a new one, another one in May or something at some point in the summer because uh, a lot of these coaches just don't take the time um, that they need for themselves. But then also, again, a lot of these people have families, and yeah. that that's a really hard thing to juggle or, or feel like you're being pulled in one direction. So, um, yeah, I love the recruiting part. It's fun to get to know all these people. It's fun to talk and communicate with different people from different parts of the world and all over the country. Um, but it's definitely a never-ending cycle. Yeah, that's I- – <laughs> It feels like it'd be really fun to do all that, meeting all these people and traveling, but it's also just going to be the most stressful part of the job. Yeah, has, I mean, you, you talk to 40 kids to get five, so... <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, right? like it's not both, a great success rate. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, some of them are very casual conversations. And, right. You know, 10 of those will be in depth yeah. that you don't get, but, you know, it is. It's very time-consuming. Right. Um, it's definitely stressful because if you don't get the right people, you're going to struggle to be successful. What were you like as a kid when you were getting recruited? That's the worst. Were you outgoing or were you shy? That's the worst. That was probably so awkward. <laughs> Um, I, you know, I'm such a like live by the like fly by the seat of my pants. I bet you I was like the worst college recruit. Um, I do remember committing to Clemson and and the Todd Bramble, the coach at the time. Um, I called him and they were on a bus to a game. 
I do remember that. But uh, no, I'm sure it was awful. I was I was so immature. Was that par for the course for your personality, or was it like that situation of just like no, talking that, to those coaches that made you awkward? That that was me. I was just <laughs> awkward and literally just I I wanted everything to just like work out. I didn't want to have to like do all the like work to right. it and say no to people. Uh, yeah. yeah. So um I, yeah, no, just you're just so immature. I yeah. was definitely immature, and so I, you know even some of the young women we would talk to, I'm like, wow, you're you're pretty advanced for your age because I was not. I was. Oh, Oh, man. I was a definitely still a like, kid, right, and well, going funny. through the process. I talked to some of these like class of 2023 kids that commit, and they're like, oh, yeah, I picked this school because they have this great engineering program, and I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. I'm like, you're like, you're 16. How, like, I, when I was, who's even thinking like that when I was a kid? Who knew what they wanted to major in? And, what, and now, I, they just feel so, maybe they're, more, I don't know, maybe they're not more mature now, but they feel like the situations they're in now, they've like, they're just handling it better than I think I would have or any kid when I yeah. in 2000 would have handled it. You no, know? I agree. And we see it. I have I have players come in and know exactly what they want to do. And yeah. I'm like, I don't even know what I want to do when I graduate. <laughs> I still so don't know what I want to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, it's definitely, you know, I think they have more information. I think they do have more resources just because of the landscape of, you know, social media and, and um, you know, all the, the resources they can find on the Internet. It's a right. little bit easier to access that stuff. And so – there's good and bad in that. Yeah. I think there's a lot more pressure on them because of that. But I think there also allows them to be a little more mature at a younger age. But I'm like, who really wants that? It's Not like that. the last chance you have to be, be a kid. Yeah. yeah. And so, so we're big on that. And I, I'll be honest, I'm big on that. I, uh, I, you still, you sometimes feel bad for the, just the pressure situations that they're in at such a young age now. And I didn't go through that. And I was an elite athlete. And I yeah. just, it wasn't like that for me. And I, I never. I don't know that I ever really stress much about the college recruiting process. You're probably better and, off for it. That's a good um, yeah. yeah, and I just picked what I thought would be the most meaningful. And, and, you know, everyone probably thought it was crazy at the time. But, like, it worked out. Yeah. Everything works out in the end. I'd say it worked out for you. It did. You it did it pretty did. well for yourself. Uh, Ashley, thanks for joining us. This was a great conversation. I think we hit on a lot of interesting topics. You were great to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks again to Ashley Phillips for joining the podcast and engaging in a great conversation with us. I'm Matt Langoni. Thanks for listening. New England Soccer Journal's The Goal Podcast is produced by Steve Safran and is a Siemens Media production. You've been listening to New England Soccer Journal's The Goal Podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to our podcast. Or visit anysoccerjournal.com forward slash podcast. Siemens Media. Inspiring. Informative. Insightful.